Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Okay, two announcements. Don't forget Leon Patillo Sunday and set your clocks back. Get an extra hour's sleep. Otherwise, you'll show up here and just sit here for an extra hour. Yeah, and sleep. Okay, amen. So let's open up Revelation chapter 22. And this should be the last lesson in Revelation this evening. And then your exam will be. The week after that, I'm just kidding. We'll do something different the week after that. And uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to go through the book of Hebrews, and I have that on my heart, but we'll see. Uh, Revelation 22, and I'm just going to pick up with verse 6, and let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word this evening, and I just pray, Lord, as we study your word, as we turn to your word, as we come to the end of this marvelous book, Lord, that you would really impress these things in our heart, Lord, that we would have an ear to hear, and that we would remember of those seven churches that were really only two out of the seven that were not reprimanded and warned that they were going down the wrong path, Lord. I pray that we would not be lifted up with pride, that we would not walk in arrogance, that our hearts would be humble before you to hear what you're speaking to us, Lord, and to receive the correction that you give to us because you give that correction to all of your children whom you love, Lord. And I pray that we would truly be ready, as, as, as much as we can be ready, that we would be ready in these last days, um, not only for your return, for, but for each coming day, that we would be prepared by your Holy Spirit to meet that day and to walk in your will and to accomplish your will on this earth, Lord, and in our lives. And I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Revelation 22, we left off with verse 6 last week, and I want to just go with verses 6 through 9, and then we're going to what technically in the outline I called the final message, part 12 of the book, which is from verse 10 through the end of the book. So Revelation 22, verse 6 says, And he said to me, and I want to remind you of who is saying this. Now, you're gonna, if you have a red-letter Bible, you're going to have red letters in some places and black letters in other places. And as I told you in the very beginning of the book of Revelation, sometimes it's not really easy to understand if it's Jesus talking or an angel talking. And I, I personally believe that that's that way on purpose because there really should, when the, if the angel is speaking, then he's speaking what Jesus is telling him to speak. He's speaking as his messenger. Uh, so you don't have to pay a whole lot of attention to the red words. You know they weren't there in the original. And sometimes they might not be... Uh, like there's one place tonight where I actually think it should have continued on with the red that it's Jesus talking there, but either way, it doesn't matter. So it says, but the he in verse 6 specifically, it tells us way back in chapter 21, verse 9, who is talking to John. And it says that it's one of the seven angels who had the bowls of God's wrath that were poured out upon the earth. And that's really quite significant because the angel of God's wrath, the bull angel, is the one who is preaching this message of hope to John. 
that the wrath is, is coming and the punishment is coming upon the earth, not for the destruction of the earth, but for the salvation of all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So it says in verse 6, sorry, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, just think about those words, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. You know, every one of us has a spirit. We are spiritual people. We've been talking a lot about that. And every spirit has a God over it. And some people are controlled by the God of this world. And the prophets of God, they are under the headship of the Lord, the God, who is called the spirits, the God of the spirits of the prophets. And he sent his angel to show to his bondservants, that's us, the things which must soon take place. And then, then we have the red letters. It, it apparently is still the angel talking, but it is Jesus uh, speaking also. It says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, they made those letters red because it seems obvious that it's Jesus saying, I am coming quickly. But it seems in the context that Jesus is actually speaking this through his, his angel, but it's obviously coming from Jesus. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And in verse 8 it says, I, John, now we know clearly who's talking, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship, this is the second time he's done this in the book, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he says to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. So there's really a, a lot that's said in those final words there in, in verse 9. Um, first of all, we see that John is also a little bit confused. <laughs> is this Jesus talking? Is this an angel talking? You know, and uh, he's just so overpowered with the glory and the presence of God that he falls down at the feet of this angel to, to worship at the feet of this angel. And the angel prevents him from doing that and rebukes him for doing that. And I want you to understand that if an angel would rebuke him for doing that in that circumstance, then how much more should we never worship at the feet of any man or any god of this age? You know, if there was ever a time when somebody may have had an excuse for worshiping at the feet of some creature, it would have been John in this situation. But the angel is very quick to stop him and say no. And he says these two words that mean so much to us today. Worship God. There is only one who is worthy of our worship. Worship God. And it also tells us that the angels are fellow servants of ours that they are serving God together with us, that they are working together with us. And we're not really very conscious of them in our lives. We're not conscious of them here this evening, but they are here this evening. They are here with us this evening, and they are servants of God. And they prepare people's hearts to receive the ministry of the Word of God. And they protect us, and they guide us, and they help us. And you need to have the confidence in that that God's angels are on our side because it's very obvious to us that demons are against us. 
it seems that we're more conscious of demons in this world than we are of, of angels. But we don't need to ever fear when we're doing God's will because there are always angels with us there to protect us. Our children, our grandchildren need to be taught that they have angels who protect them. Jesus made a special point to say that you know, guardian angels, that's not just a Catholic uh, myth. That's in the Bible. Jesus made a special point to say that each child has an angel who represents them before God the Father. I don't know how all of that works, but I believe that even when you grow up, you're still a child of God, that that angel continues to follow you, to work with you, and to protect you and help you in this life. So we have great forces on our side. One time, uh, Elisha said to his servant, uh, when the servant was afraid, he said, open your eyes and look all around you. There are more with us than are against us. And the Lord opened the eyes of his servant, and he saw on the hills these chariots with angels all around them that were on their side. So God is on our side. We see that they are fellow servants of ours. And we also see in this that the prophets and the apostles are our fellow servants, that we are all one body of Christ together. So in uh, verse 7, we have these words, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, way back at the beginning of this teaching, I told you that there are seven times in the book of Revelation where we read blessed. And this is number six. Number seven comes in verse 14, where it says, blessed are those who wash their robes, etc." And we'll read that in just a few minutes. So it's very significant. The word blessed, makarios, it's the same word that Jesus uses in, in the Beatitudes. Uh, you know, when uh, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and th those things. And it means happy beyond measure. It means not just a normal happy, but a wildly happy. <laughs> that you're really happy. You're really blessed. You're really happy people if you heed the words of the prophecy of this book. So in these verses we just read, we read that these words are faithful, that there's, there's no mistakes in these words that we're reading. And if that's scary, if that's encouraging, whatever you feel about it, the fact is that these words are faithful and these words are true. And every one of them will come to pass, as Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. They will not fail. The word of God will not fail. It will endure forever. So they are faithful. They are true. And then we also see concerning these words that the angel was sent to John, and John was sent to us to reveal these words to us. This is a special message from Jesus. He wants us to hear these words. But he wants us not only to hear these words, but to heed these words. And we're blessed if we heed them. To heed, kind of a little bit more old English, of course, but it's to obey. To hear something and to obey it. That's what it means to heed these words. So it's one thing to know what the book of Revelation says, but it's another thing entirely to implement that into our lives. And as I was talking uh, Sunday, to really follow Jesus as his disciples, 
and know that he has given us these words to be ready. I believe the book of Revelation is a book that we should be living in because it's a book that speaks about our day and our age and where we are going from here. And there is so much that God has spoken to us through this word. So he says to heed these words. He says that these things, notice that he says these things must soon take place. Not that they might soon take place, but they must soon take place. That they are coming, and they are coming with no delay. And if it seems like there's been some delay with God, it's only from our perspective. But all of these things must soon take place. So now let's look at verse 10, and we'll go into this last part of the book of Revelation, which is the final message of Revelation. And I'll just read it a little bit at a time, and we'll talk about it. We'll start with verse 10 and 11. It says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. That's a very interesting word. Um, it tells us that we have to choose what side we're on. Because on one side, there are people who are filthy, uh, people who, and on the other side, there are those who, uh, who are righteous. Um, and he says, let the one who does wrong just keep on doing wrong. And let the one who's filthy just keep on being filthy. Doesn't that sound like the society that we live in today? the world that we live in today. And there comes a point in time as we come to the end of this book where God just basically says, just let them go. I've turned them over to a reprobate mind as Roman chapter, Romans chapter 1 says. But you follow me. Let the dead just bury their dead. But you come and follow me. Don't worry about what's going to happen to everybody else. You come and follow me. You need to take care for your own self and for your own family, and for your own house. Now, I don't know if these words sound familiar to you, but we've read them before. Go with me back over to Daniel and chapter 8 first. I'm going to read a few verses in Daniel. All the way to the end of the book of Revelation, there are constant references to verses and places in the Old Testament. And many of them we haven't even taken the time to explore. Daniel chapter 8 I'll read a few verses from Daniel. Uh, the first one is Daniel 8.26. It says, The vision of the evenings and mornings, Daniel 8.26, The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true. It's the same thing he's saying in Revelation. These words are faithful, and these words are true. They must soon come to pass. But then it says in Daniel, But keep the vision secret. For it pertains to many days in the future. Notice the difference. In Daniel, Daniel is told, you keep this a secret. You don't reveal what it means. You just write it down. You know? And, and it, 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 what Daniel wrote would be utterly confusing if we didn't have the New Testament to reveal the meaning of it to us. And so there's a great focus on the book of Daniel, even in the teachings of Jesus, and then in Paul and with John also, he's told to keep it secret because it's not time for people to know this yet. But John is told not to keep it a secret, not to seal up the words of this book. 
but to reveal them because it is time for this judgment to come and it is time uh, the, for the end of all things, and re- which is really the beginning of all things. And then Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, it says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. And so if these words have been revealed, then we know that we live at the end of time. And in the New Testament, it is said, it says uh, that the end of the ages has come upon us. And if that was true 2,000 years ago, then so much more so is it true today. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said that these are the last days and that the Spirit is being poured out on all flesh in these last days. And then in verse 9 of Daniel 12, verse 9, we read, He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end, of, until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And we've read all these scriptures before, but we kind of, if you look at the context, but more of a focus on the numbers, the dates, and these different things. I want you to see that what John is writing, what the Holy Spirit is giving him to write here, and what the Spirit is speaking in chapter 22 are exactly these same words that are written in Daniel. It's a very clear reference to Daniel. That there are those who are wicked, and there are those who are righteous. There are those who are stupid. I don't know how else to say it, because they're not going to understand. And there are those who are given knowledge, and they are given revelation. And those who are stupid are just going to get stupider. And those who are wicked are just going to get wickeder, more wicked. And, and, and then in the book of Revelation, it says those who are uh, filthy, those who are unclean, that they will remain filthy until the end. And we see that in the book of Revelation. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody's going to get saved in the end times or nobody can get saved today. But it's a message to say that we have to choose which side we are on. That we have to be dedicated to the Lord. We have to walk in his holiness and be the people of God in these last days. That there's not any time to play games anymore. There probably never was time for games. But there's definitely not time for those games anymore. And so Daniel is told to, or John is told to reveal these words unto us. And then look at verse 12. Verse 12, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Here you have red words again, uh, because obviously whether the angel is saying it directly to John or Jesus is saying it, this is Jesus' words. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Look with me over at Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah 62 and verse 11. Isaiah 62, 11 says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense comes before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. 
So the reward that he brings is the reward that we get to be where he is. We get to live in the house of our father. In my father's house, there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is our reward. And he says that I will reward every person according to what he has done. Uh, this, this doing in faith, I preached about it on Sunday in discipleship and how many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, you know, uh, but not, not all those who say, Lord, Lord, are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. It's not something that we put enough focus on in our lives. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus is coming and that when he comes, uh, even for the saints, even for the righteous, even for Christians, there, there will be a judgment. And the judgment will be based on what we have done in this life. And, and there will be some who... Uh, their works will go through the, everybody's works will go through the fire. And some of those works will come out the other side like gold and silver and precious stones. And some of those works will come out like wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, they won't come out through the other side. And, but it says even in that scripture, but, but that one shall be saved as if by fire. So it's not talking about going to hell, but it's talking about not reaping the reward that God wants you to have in, in, in this life, not walking in the kingship, in the, in the princeship, uh, the rulership that Christ has given us to walk in. There's so much more that he has for us, and we should not cheat ourselves in this life, but we should hunger and thirst after his righteousness and not be ashamed of that. And so often we're ashamed. We have this idea, I was talking with somebody about this the other day, I can't remember, but we have this idea that uh, well, a person could be too heavenly-minded and they're of no earthly good. And you know that that's not scriptural because actually the scripture teaches us the exact opposite, that a person is too earthly-minded and so they're of no heavenly good. If someone is truly heavenly-minded, then they're going to be of the ultimate earthly good because they're going to walk in God's love towards other people. If their mind is focused on heavenly things, if their mind is turned to the Lord. And we, so we have this daily challenge in our lives to remember that, that you know, there, 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 there comes a day when our, our work will be judged. And sometimes our, our work fails because we do wrong things, but oftentimes our work fails because we just don't do anything. And if we take the parables that Jesus said, I would say the latter is the more common case. Because when we do wrong things, we have 1 John 1, 9. We have the blood of Jesus. And we all do wrong things. We all fail in many ways. And you know, when I was a child, I don't know, maybe it was the way they preached or just something I felt. I'd have all these little guilt feelings like, oh, I hope Jesus doesn't come back while I'm committing a sin or while I'm telling a lie to my dad or something like that because I might get sent to hell or something like that. I was really, really worried about that. I was also worried to come back while I was taking a bath and I'd be naked. And I, I don't know. I went to church and I got some crazy ideas when I was a kid. <laughs> it takes some time to get through some of that stuff. But um, I just remember thinking those things and kind of having this fear of God that m maybe wasn't, well, maybe it was right at that age in my childhood. I don't know. But it wasn't really a healthy fear of God. It wasn't really an understanding fear of God. I think I saw God as somebody that wanted to punish me more. And it took time for me to... I remember when I was in Bible college, the uh, first time I heard about the righteousness of God. We had, we had this class on, on righteousness. 
And I was in shock. I thought, why did my pastor never preach this? I never heard this before, that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and what it means to be righteous and what a blood covenant is and the relationship. And maybe my pastor did preach on that. I just didn't hear it. I don't know. But I really began to get it when I was about 18 or 19 years old. And it takes time to get to that place. But when we look at the parables of Jesus, we see that the things that it seems that uh, judgment is, uh, comes down hard on the servants in these parables because they do things like take his talent and then do nothing with it. So it's not the sin of commission as much as the sin of omission. We're not doing what God has called us to do. We're not being faithful with the talent that he's given us or we're burying it you know, and just saying, I know that my master is harsh and... Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to even take a risk with anything. Better to take a risk by faith. A risk by faith isn't really a risk. It's just a step of faith. And fall flat on your face. The Bible says that the righteous will fall down seven times, but they always get back up. But better to be found busy doing the work of God, even if you've got, you know, bruised knees and and calluses all over your hands, and splinters in your fingers, and you're, you know, it hurts and it's painful, but you're trying to do what God wants you to do in this life, and to be faithful in that work, because when he comes, he wants to find us busy doing what he's given us to do. He says he will come to render to every man according to what he has done. And then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Um, just in case you don't know, alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. So it'd be like saying, I am the A and the Z, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's very important to note that it does not say, I am from the beginning unto the end. It says, I am the beginning and the end. It's a statement of deity that I have Jesus, I have no beginning, and I have no end. I am the beginning, and I am the end. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega. I am all in all, and the only thing worthy, and the only one worthy of your worship. There is nothing before me, there is nothing after me, and perhaps most importantly for people to hear today, there is no way around Jesus. You're going to go through Jesus someday, one way or another. Every knee will bow because he is the beginning and the end. So let's look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. This is the seventh blessed in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. First of all, I want to point out the responsibility that's put on us in that beatitude, in that blessed. It doesn't say here, blessed are those whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, even though that's true. It says, blessed are those who wash their robes and implied in the blood of the Lamb. How often do you wash your clothes? Well, our house, we wash clothes quite often. And uh, even if at your house you don't wash clothes quite often, you wash them often enough that you can keep wearing them, right? 
Clothes are not something that can be washed one time and that's it. A lot of people don't like to hear about repentance. Well, I repented once when I became a Christian. I don't need to repent anymore. But that is not the message of righteousness and it's not the message of the Word of God. Repentance is simply a correction of our path. When you're driving a car, you are constantly correcting your path, are you not? Your hands are always moving. And if you're not on cruise control, your feet are moving. And if you are on cruise control, the car is doing that for you, right? We're always correcting our paths and everything we do in the natural world. And it is so in the world of the spirit that we walk with this repentance, that we're willing to listen to God and to receive his discipline and to make a change in our lives. And that when our clothes get dirty, that we don't be like a 12-year-old boy because we got one of those in our house where mom has to keep going to him and say, I say, take that shirt off, that needs to be washed. You know, I think it's just fine. I got my ketchup here, my mustard here, you know. You know how kids are, especially boys. But let's grow up. We don't need Jesus to keep telling us all the time to wash our robes. We know when we're getting dirty. Let's get out of that situation. I mean, how many of you, don't raise your hand because that'd be kind of strange, but how many of you do not know when you're in a situation or have gotten yourself dirty with sin, where you're not pure before God. And maybe you haven't even done anything really bad, but you just said some words or just put something out there and you just realize, you feel it on the inside. This is not right. Well, go wash your robes. It's a blessing. You're gonna be really happy when you get those robes out of the dryer and put them back on. You know, the walk in the blood of the Lamb, walk in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life and walk in his righteousness because we cannot earn that righteousness and we must wash our robes. So there's a responsibility put on us in that, in that blessed. And, and that's very important to this final message because everything we're reading here puts a responsibility on us. Okay, So blessed are those who wash their robes And it says, so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Do you remember in the parable that Jesus told that uh, King had a big wedding party for his son and the people he invited wouldn't come and it goes on and on and they go out into the highways and the byways and they bring everybody in. But the parable doesn't end with that. It ends with the king walking down the rows and looking at all the homeless people and whoever showed up, but they all are dressed beautifully, right? And then he sees one person who's sitting there with street clothes on. He didn't put on the wedding clothes that were provided to him. You know, he's not wearing the tux or whatever it was they were supposed to wear. And he says to him, how did you get in here? He goes, I just walked in. He goes, well, get out of here. And he tells the servants to drag him out and throw him out there where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not, you know, God is very formal. We're not formal anymore. But God is very formal. And, and, uh, you know, we need, we need to have a respect for his home and a respect for that, his, his, the, the marriage supper of, of, of the Lamb. And we need to prepare our hearts for, the, for those things. This isn't about, you know, what clothes we're wearing or what you can afford. It's about what's been given to you because these wedding clothes, these robes are provided for us by the Lord Jesus. Are we refusing to put on the righteousness that God has given us? because then we'll stand out from the world. Then we'll be different from the world. You know, do we refuse to dress the way that God is calling us to dress? 
Do we refuse to lift our heads up and walk with our heads high as Christians to be um, the people of God in this world? God said, I will make a difference between you and the Egyptians. And not even an Egyptian dog will even dare to wag its tongue at you because you will walk in my majesty and you will walk in my glory. But if you walk that way, then you're not going to fit in with the world. You know, you just don't fit in with people anymore. But God is calling us to put these robes on and to walk into his presence and to enjoy the right to the tree of life. We talk about our rights all the time. Second Amendment rights, First Amendment rights, 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 all these rights all the time. Uh, the word right is the Greek word exousia, exousia, and it means an authority, uh, a possessive authority, that you have a right to something. Um, in John 1.12, it says um, that we have the right to be called the children of God that we have been given the right to be called the children of God. We have the right to eat from the tree of life. And remember that that right has been lost to all mankind. That He shut down the garden and placed an angel there with a flaming sword so that we would not eat from the tree of life. But we have the right to the tree of life. And we may enter by the gates into the city. In John chapter 10, Jesus is very clear, clear that he says, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. And everyone who tries to climb over the wall, he's just a thief. Uh, he's just a hireling. He says, these thieves, uh, they come just to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But everyone who comes through me, they are true sheep. And only through Jesus may we enter to the cross to the tree of life, and we have that right to enjoy that. Now look at verse uh, 15. In contrast to that, it says, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons. It's the Greek word again, pornea. You could translate that in many different ways today. The sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. We live in a society today that loves and practices lying. That's all they do. They just love and they practice lying all the time. And he says, all of them, they are outside. Outside, well, if you look in the whole context of what we've been reading, that's the lake of fire. They are outside. They are cast out. And they will never be allowed to enter through the gate into the tree of life. Go with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Um, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, by the way, there in Revelation, if you'll notice, verse 13 is in red and verse 16 is in red. And this is a place where I actually think they should have made 14 and 15 in red also. Not a big deal, but it's obviously Jesus continuing to talk here. And um, so go with me over to Philippians chapter 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And chapter 2. Um, that's Ephesians. He said, outside are the dogs. And then he uses words that describe uh, humans, sorcerers, immoral persons, murderers, idolaters. And so dogs is not um, a separate category. What he's saying is all these people are dogs. Now, we love dogs. 
we have our dog Rudy, and we're just, we love Rudy. But dogs are an unclean animal in the scripture. And in real life, dogs are an unclean animal. No matter how much you love your dog, there are scriptures that are true, that a dog will return to its vomit. And a dog will eat many nasty things. And no matter how intelligent they are, how much you love your dogs, in the scripture, a dog was considered an unclean animal, which is good because that meant that they didn't eat dogs. They just had dogs. And uh, so we, we use the word dog like that also. Uh, sometimes very derogatory to refer to a person. And so don't get your feelings hurt about dogs. But uh, it's speaking about an unclean uh, animal. But it's, it's very interesting in the scripture when it's used by Paul and by John, uh, it's, 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 it's really referring to people that pretend to be religious or they pretend to have this, uh, the Pharisees are dogs. They're, they're pharisaical, that they um, walk in a way that is seemingly religious, but they have no relationship with Christ at all. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says, uh, in beginning with verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there is any consolation of love, and there certainly is, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, oh boy, there is, if any affection and compassion there is, then make my joy complete, Paul says, by being of the same mind. Every pastor would say that. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Uh, do not... Uh, <laughs> I went to chapter 2, and I'm glad I did, because I think the Holy Spirit wanted me to read that to you. But I meant to say chapter 3. Go over to chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. He starts out, and he says, beware of the dogs. And then John says, there will be no dogs there. In Philippians, uh, Paul is saying that I've written this stuff to you before, but I'm going to write it to you again because you need to hear this warning today. You need to beware of these dogs. And then he explains who they are. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. We are washing our robes in the blood of the Lamb. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So Paul is saying, uh, he's, he's talking about what, what's usually called the Judaizers. And these were Jewish leaders, mostly Pharisees. They still exist to this day, who were compelling the Gentile Christians to be circumcised and telling them that if you are not circumcised, then you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But these were Jewish leaders who also proclaimed Jesus to be their Messiah. So it's not that they were just utterly lost, but Paul just calls them out. They're people coming into the church. And he says, these people are dogs, because what they're trying to do is separate you away from the grace that, that we have in Christ Jesus. What they're trying to do is separate you away from the love of God. And what they're really trying to do is make you slaves of themselves. They're really trying to manipulate you, control you, and put you under their, their own power. And he says, you need to beware of these people. 
because we are the true circumcision. Because, you know, circumcision is a removal of the flesh. And he says, we are the true circumcision because we do not put our trust in the flesh. We're not trusting that our robes are just going to stay clean all by themselves. We put our trust in the blood of the Lamb. We put our trust in, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We walk in this grace by putting our trust in him. And so he's warning them about them. And he says, if anybody could come to you and claim to be really a super righteous guy, that would be me. Because I met all the qualifications for the Jews, and I'm a much better Jew than any of those Jews are. And he says in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So it's a circumcision of the heart, a cutting away of the flesh of the heart, a cutting away of the pride, cutting away of the arrogance and are revealing the nakedness of our heart before God. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. This is something for me to put out at the curb on Tuesday morning or Monday or whatever day you do it. This is something to be flushed down the toilet. I mean, that's what he's literally saying. This is dung. This is rubbish. It's all worthless. Everything that I took pride in. And he's talking about his education. He's talking about his family. He's talking about his upbringing. He's talking about his wealth. He's talking about his influence. He's talking about his popularity. He says it's all worth absolutely nothing because I have only one value in my life, and that is to gain Christ, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own. Not having a report card that has straight A's on it that I earn by myself. Even though that is absolutely the thing that everybody's trying to get and prove to Jesus that I'm a really good person. He says, I don't want to have that. The only report card that means anything to me is the one that Jesus gives to me. The one that he fills in for me by his blood and by his righteousness. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, through trusting Jesus Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, this is a eschatological scripture. It's speaking about the end times, actually. He's saying, my goal is so that when I get to the end of the book of Revelation, that I'm going to be on the right side. I'm going to be one of those who has a right to enter by the gate and eat from the tree of life. I want to attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And he's going to go on to say, well, I haven't got there yet. I've still got a lot of work to do. I'm still, you know, but I'm on the path. I'm on the right road. I know that I'm getting there because I'm walking hand in hand with Jesus and he is walking together uh, with me. So those who are outside, uh, when it says uh, sorcerers, immoral persons, murderers, idolaters, we automatically think of people who are sitting in prison right now. 
But you know, many who are last, they will become first. And many who are first, they will become last. Jesus saved his harshest rebukes for the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees that he said, your father is the devil and you are liars. And he's been a liar from the beginning and that's why you're liars, because your father is the devil. It's to the Pharisees and concerning the Pharisees that he said, uh, the thief comes uh, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Most of us think that he's talking about the devil in that scripture, and he is, technically, but read it in the context. He's not. He's talking about the Pharisees, that they climb over the wall, they come into the sheepfold, they want to steal the sheep, they want to kill the sheep, and they want to destroy the sheep. But I have come that you might have life and that you might have that life more abundantly. So he says, outside are all those who put their trust in their own pride, who put their trust in their own uh, report card, in their own righteousness, what they could attain unto themselves and by themselves. And in reality, they are nothing more than sorcerers. The word sorcery has a whole lot to do with drug users. And it's kind of interesting because they didn't use drugs to the magnitude that they're used today by any means, but it's there in the scripture for these very last days. Those who enter the spirit realm and work to manipulate the spirit realm and manipulate their lives, their, their peace, their happiness through the use of drugs and other things. Uh, he, talk, he, call, he says that these are immoral persons, they're pornographers, they're uh, fornicators, whatever words you want to put out there, all forms of sexual immorality, and that they are actually murderers. And some will say, but I never murdered anyone, but Jesus says, but you hated them in your heart, and so you murdered them. And finally, they are idolaters because they love and practice lying. Well, we're going to talk more about them in just a minute. But let's go now to verse uh, 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify. So now we know this is Jesus talking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. So he tells John, these things I've given you for the churches. For you to write these things to those seven churches, which means to us also. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So this makes reference back to Revelation 2.28. We've, we've read these words before, that he's the root, he's the descendant of David, he's the bright and morning star. To say that he's the root and descendant of David is much the same as saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Um, you know, in, in the scripture, there's no king who's greater than David. David is the man after God's own heart. And there's, there's no one uh, more beloved than David. You know, the, the Psalms that he wrote, the beauty, the majesty of his life, uh, the humility of his life, uh, the fact that he was able, uh, having committed great sin, to receive the rebuke from God and to cry out before God and and to, to melt his heart before God and to be so forgiven and so used and so blessed by God. I mean, everyone loves the stories of David. But David is just a shadow of the Messiah. He's a type of the Messiah. And um, Jesus says, I'm the root and I'm the descendant of David. This is really important. He's, he's saying that I am the beginning of David's authority. And I'm the flowering or the fulfillment of David's authority. That without me, 
as he said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. He said to them, Abraham, your father, saw my day and rejoiced. And they said, how could you know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old yet. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus says that I'm the root of David. All of his authority comes from me. But I'm also the branches and the fruit, the descendant of David. I'm the fulfillment of all. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the root and descendant. I am all in all. And he says, and I am the bright and morning star. So again, we talked about this before, that this is the light of Jesus uh, arising in the middle of the night. You know, the morning star is that really bright star that's actually a planet. And I think usually it's Venus, it might be Jupiter, and I think it's been Jupiter here lately, but you know, very early in the morning, in the darkest of, of hours, there'll be this bright star that tells you that the sun is getting ready to rise. And Jesus says that I am the bright and morning star for you today. When it seems like all hope is lost, when it seems like everything's terrible, focus your eye on me, because I am coming soon. And the sun is getting ready to rise with healing in its wings, as it says in the last chapter of Malachi. Then let's look at verse 17. It says, The spirit and the bride say, Come. So we are the bride, and the Holy Spirit in our hearts is speaking this word, Come. Everything we're saying to Jesus is, Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Just come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. We talked about that last week. I want to focus for just a minute on this word, come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit wants Jesus to come back soon. He's at work on the inside of us. In the book of Genesis, at the very beginning, we see the Spirit of God and here in the book of Revelation, at the very end, we see the Spirit of God. In the book of Genesis, the Spirit of God, it says, is hovering over the face of the deep. I like to picture like this dove hovering over the face of the deep, over the chaos that, that existed. And he's hovering. It's like he's birthing in the creation of God, like, like a mother hen sitting on her eggs. <laughs> He's hovering over the face of the deep. And here we have him at the end working with the bride. The Spirit of God in us is hovering over our church. He's hovering over our hearts. He's preparing us with a hunger and a thirst for Jesus. That we want Jesus. We need Jesus. I don't know if you ever feel lonely for Jesus. I don't know if you ever feel like you're just so sick and tired of all the junk of this world. I just need Jesus. I just need his presence. Come, Lord Jesus, come. You know, there's, you know, if you've raised kids, you know that there, there can be a time when your kids don't necessarily want you to come home so quickly. Do you know what I'm talking about? There could be a time where you might call them and say, well, we're on the way home, and you might hear them say, uh, exactly what time are you going to be here? And you know, something's up. <laughs> they spilled something, or they're doing something, or something happened, because they're real concerned about what time we're going to get there, you know. And you don't really feel like they're real excited about you coming home. 
And then there can be other times when your kids are so excited about you coming home. You know, and, and when they are excited about you coming home, I remember my dad went on lots of business trips. I don't go on a whole lot of trips without my family. It happens sometimes. But my dad went on a lot of business trips when I was growing up. And we always loved for him to go on business trips. And you know why? Because when he came home, he brought the coolest presents to us. And uh, we were always so excited about him coming home. And I think, now that I'm a dad growing up, uh, you know, that he did that because he wanted to instill in us this, I, I don't know if he thought this way or not, but whether he did or not, it did. It instilled in us this desire for dad to come home. We wanted him to come home. We weren't afraid that dad was going to come home. We're going to get in trouble or something like that. We were really excited because we always knew that when he opens his briefcase, there's going to be some present for mom and there's going to be some gift for each one of us. An excitement about Jesus coming home is what he wants in us. When the disciples asked him, how should we pray? Teach us to pray. He said, well, pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Come. We want Jesus to come. We want him to come. And so the spirit and the bride say, come. Whoever hears these words says, come. Uh, whoever is thirsty, you can come yourself. You can run out to meet Jesus. You don't have to stay locked up waiting for him to come. Run out and meet him. Run out into the road and greet him. Get excited about Jesus. I mean, that's what these words are really saying. Get really excited about Jesus. Be out there jumping and looking at the gate and looking and waiting for him to come. And as soon as you see him, run out to meet him. Because Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And John says, what he says here we read, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies, that's John, to these things says, uh, that's Jesus, yes, I am coming quickly. And then John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Just come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So there's something about living a comfortable life that makes us less hungry for Jesus to come back. And, and uh, there's something about persecution throughout church history and trials and tribulations that cause people to be more cognizant of the treasure and, and the beauty of the Lord Jesus and all they want is just to be with Jesus because they're worn out from the things of this world. And the book of Revelation tells us a lot about tribulation. And there's a lot that God does in us through tribulation, through trials, and through testings. And we should be very thankful to the Lord for those things when we're stripped away, when our pride is stripped away from us. And we're hungry just for Jesus. Because when he comes back, that's all there will be, is just Jesus. His grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all of us. It says, Amen. So the final warning of the book, it's interesting that the book actually ends with another final warning. And the warning applies to the entire Bible, okay? Uh, this where it says, if anyone adds to the book, then the plagues of this book will be, that are written in this book, uh, will be added to him. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree 
uh, of life and from the holy city. Uh, this is actually what's called an imprimatur. If you ever read a Catholic book, it'll have a little imprimatur in the beginning that the Pope gives as sanctions that you can print this book. And it means in Latin, let this book be printed. And this is Jesus's imprimatur. It's like his stamp on the book. And he's saying, let this book be printed. Because he's actually saying, this is a book now. These aren't just visions that John is having. But this is a book, and these words will be written. And that we will give an account for how we receive or how we reject these words. Go with me over, and we'll end with this in this little part here, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, we're not really ending the book of Revelation, because I want you to go back and read it again. And just keep reading it. <laughs> but Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, and in verse 1, it says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform. So that's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the books of Moses. I am teaching you to perform these, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who hold fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. And he goes on, see, I've taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land you are entering to possess it. So this reference in Revelation is, again, to the very end of the book of Revelation. There's very clear references to scriptures in the Old Testament. And this is a direct reference to what Moses said in Deuteronomy, which is a powerful statement because it comes at the end of the Bible and not all the books of the Bible are in the order that they were written. Okay? Uh, they're actually organized in a different way. But this actually is the last book of the Bible that was written. And so it comes at the closing of the revelation of God's word over a period of more than 1,500 years. The, the Bible has been being written. And now it's being closed. And the same words that were spoken at the beginning, because Deuteronomy is the beginning. This is the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses. And that's the seal that's on the end of the books of the Torah. Now that seal is put on the end of the entire Bible. And so this applies to the entire word of God. And Jesus has put this seal on this book. And he said that if you add to the, book, to the words of this book, then these plagues shall be added unto you. And if you take away from them, then your part in the, the tree of life, your, your part in the kingdom of God will be taken away. Well, when we go back over to Deuteronomy, we see this reference to Baal Peor. And it's actually an important reference, and I'm not going to take the time to read it, but I'll tell you where it is. It's Numbers chapter 25, but perhaps you'll remember the story. There's a guy named Balaam, and we've already read about him in Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus says, I'm, I, I'm against those who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Do you remember? And because Balaam taught Balak how to lead the children of Israel into idolatry. And we talked about that then, that Balak is the secular king and Balaam is the religious leader, okay? And the union between church and state. And we talked about a lot of that stuff. It's been almost a year ago by, by now. It's last February, I think, when we were there, March. And um, 
but in Numbers chapter 25, there's this story. So Balaam is hired, he's paid money to curse the children of Israel, right? But he can't do it. Every time he opens his mouth, just blessings come out. And he actually has some amazing prophecy about the Messiah that come out because the Spirit of God is still moving through him because he's a prophet of God. But his heart is wicked. You see, he has a calling on his life and he has an anointing on his life. But his heart is wicked. And that's very possible for that to happen. And he likes money. And Balak's paying him money to curse Israelites so that Balak can defeat them in war. And here's something else quite interesting. In our world today, we've completely thrown the sacred out the window with the trash. And when we throw out the sacred, we throw out our own culture, we throw out our own lives. People don't even believe in God anymore. People aren't, don't believe that God is, is, you know, Balak, a pagan king, knew that he needed a curse to be put on them or he'd never defeat them in battle because they were blessed by God. Even the pagans believed in the power of God. Today we're more pagan than those pagans as a society because people don't even believe in God anymore and they act as if he doesn't exist. Um, So Balaam couldn't curse them. In Numbers 25, it's not super clear when you read that, but Revelation brings it out and there's other places that bring it out. So what Balaam did is he said, I'll teach you where their Achilles heel is. I'll teach you how to make them fall. I can't curse them, but I'll tell you what they like. Oh, what do they like? They like really pretty girls. And so the um, uh, Balak, the, the king of Moab, he let all the girls come out, got them all dressed up, whatever they did, and they're dancing and offering sacrifices to the false gods. And the men of Israel were enticed by this harlotry. And they came over and they began to bow before the gods of Moab and offer sacrifices up to them. Why? Well, just to be blunt, because they wanted to have sex with those girls and that's all there was to it. And that sexual impurity outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral people. People don't realize how intertwined pornography and sexual impurity are with idolatry. But they're one and the same. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a lesson to be learned when you're a teenager. And if you didn't, then it's a lesson definitely to learn when you're an adult. That when two people are joined even mentally uh, or in the soulish realm with one another, then they're joined also spiritually. There's a spiritual joining. You can be joined to the false gods. And, the, and Numbers 25 tells us that, that they were joined to these false gods. And so God spoke to Moses and said to Moses, tell all the elders to go and kill every single one of those people. So they had to go out and kill their own brothers, nephews, sons in certain cases. And they went out and killed them. And I think it was 25,000 of them were put to death. Because in God's understanding, they were utterly, completely lost. Let the wicked just continue to be wicked. Let the unclean just to be con- continue to be unclean. And that had to be purged out of their society. Why? Because they had a covenant with God. You know, a lot of times as Americans, I've kind of struggled with this over the years because I was raised believing that I lived in a Christian nation. 
And I was taught that we have a covenant with God. You know, I went to a Christian high school. I learned these things in church. I've read, you know, lots of the writings of the fathers of our nation. And, and it seems that we did. But if we did, then are we not in all the much more trouble then? Think about that. <laughs> because if we have this covenant with God, then he was not going to tolerate that in our midst at all. And so don't be surprised that these things are being exposed. These things are being cut out and we're going, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's like we're going through hell because of the wickedness that's in this nation. But God's not going to tolerate it. He's not going to allow it. And he, that's because he wants to save us. He wants to save our children. He wants to save our grandchildren. I cry out to God practically on a daily basis for my children to be saved from the wickedness of this generation because it's so utterly destructive and it wants to drag them down to hell and it's so deceptive and it's so hard as parents and grandparents and pastors and youth ministers to even deal with these things today because Satan has made himself this serpent that's so deceptive today. But we have to remember that the angels are on our side, that God is on our side, and I rejoice, therefore, in him judging these things and bringing them to light and removing them. So that's what the Baal Peor was in, in that story. By the way, uh, the story ends with uh, this one guy who's a really wealthy and powerful Israelite. He's the son of one of the big leaders in the Simeonites. And he goes and gets a, a girl and brings her home to his relatives. And she's a Moabitess. And she's the daughter of one of the most powerful Moabite princes. Okay, so this is a powerful union. And this guy named Phineas, who's the, son, the grandson of Aaron, and the son of Eleazar, he just picks up a spear and runs into the tent and kills him. And God says, good job, Phineas. <laughs> and God blesses Phineas. He says, because of the zeal of Phineas, this plague has been stayed, and I will not judge anymore. And they didn't have to kill anybody else off after that because one person had a zeal for God. Of course, Phineas is a type of Christ. The zeal for thine house has consumed me. How I want for us to have that zeal in our hearts that we would say, come, Lord Jesus. And not that we're going to run out here and stab somebody with a spear, but that we're going to, Put an end to this in our lives. You know, take that spear and set it down. You know, when God says, take these arrows and beat them on the ground, that we wouldn't take them and just lamely beat them three times like that king did. That we would take them and just whack them and whack them and whack those arrows on the ground, knowing that we want complete deliverance for our family. We want every one of our children and our grandchildren, and we want, we want to see them in the house of God, that our whole house shall be saved. We want to see righteousness established and that we don't give up, but we hold on to the end saying, come Jesus, come Lord Jesus. By the way, the, the Moabites, if you don't remember who they, who they were and why they were cursed, it was the two daughters of Lot when they came out of Sodom. And strangely enough, the New Testament tells us Lot was a righteous man, but he did a really bad job of sharing his righteousness with his family because nobody even believed him. They thought he was joking. But when they came out of Sodom, they went up into a cave, and the daughters said, now we're not going to ever have any kids. So they got their dad drunk and had sex with him while he was drunk. And Moab and Ammon were the children of that 
satanic union, that unholy union. And so God's curse was on those nations, and the Israelites were never to mix with them. And that's, you know, not just a good old Testament story. It's the story of our lives in the world that we live in today and how God has called us to holiness and to righteousness. So that's why I believe the last words of this book are, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, because we're not going to make it through without his grace. We need his grace to make it through. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand together. I don't know, it's ringing in my ears tonight. If I move, if I stay really still, I'm good. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your... um, just thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation. I pray that um, you would encourage our hearts to just pick this book up and read it again and read it again and not even necessarily stop and do any deep study, but just read it and let these words just be in our hearts, Lord. Let us heed the words of this book that we could just be happy. And like Moses said, that we could really possess this land, Lord. We don't want to just be um, just barely making it through. We want to possess the land that you've given us, Lord. I thank you for our families. I thank you for our homes. I thank you that you've caused us to prosper. I thank you that you've put your blessing on our lives. Now it is to us to go forth and possess the land that you've given us, Lord. It is to us to wash our robes It is to us to speak these words, come, Lord Jesus, come. And that we, Lord, would not be found guilty of hiding our talent in the ground, but we would go and we would take the talent or talents that you've given us, whatever you've given us, Lord, and we would possess that land and be found faithful in the little things, faithful in those things which belong to another, and faithful in the unrighteous mammon of this world. And know that those who are faithful in the little things, they will be made the rulers over much. I just give you praise and glory and honor. I thank you for this book. I thank you that you've made us overcomers. I thank you that you have saved us by the blood of the Lamb and that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we give you praise this evening. In Jesus' name, We hope you enjoyed the message. Amen. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. (laughs) If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.